Sarah and Ed, why don't we just, uh, what a beautiful song, and we just need to uh, um, pray before I bring God's word to you. Thank you, Lord. What a beautiful uh, song as a reminder how great you are. Uh, Sometimes our little finite mind uh, seems to think that we contain you, everything of who you are, but the reality is you are great God, that all our minds uh, put together, cannot even comprehend a little about you because you are just too great. So thank you. As we come now to this beautiful song in Exodus 15, may you speak to us. May you stir our hearts. May you stir our mind that we can contemplate more and more the greatness of this God. Thank you, Lord. We bless you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 15 uh, is a song of Moses and Miriam. It's a beautiful song. It has been said that I'm sure all of us here loves music. Uh, we may not like the same type of uh, genre of music, some like country or jazz or rock or whatever, uh, but we all love music. And some, someone said that when you're happy, you enjoy the music, uh, but when you are sad, you understand the lyrics. And, uh, but I do think that this song in uh, Exodus chapter 15, uh, the lyrics and the music must be good because it's going to be sung again as you look up probably in Revelation 15. It's talk about the song of Moses and the Lamb, uh, maybe in different variation, but it is going to be a beautiful song that will be sung again in the future. And here we come now to, as uh, Pastor Caroline has mentioned and uh, brought to us a sermon last week about the people finally, after 400 years in slavery, and after went through the 10 plagues and displayed how great God is, is able to rescue them, they finally crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And as they were reaching the end of it, look at verse 30, chapter 14, verse 30, and then I'll lead you on to the sermon in chapter 15. The conclusion of chapter 14, verse 30, it says, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in Him and in Moses and in His servants. And then chapter 15 verse 1 says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I don't know how, uh, um, some of you may be in a choir before, I don't know how, what is the biggest choir you have ever seen in your life? Uh, do you know how many people were in this choir? The scripture tell us, tells us uh, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, that there were more than 600,000 men. And then later on in chapter 38, and then in Numbers, it gives us the precise numbers of men. And that is 603,000, no, 603,550 men. And so if you include the women and children, it is probably more than 2 million people singing this song. How they, uh, how they go about doing that, I don't know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that they were singing this song, the, Israel, the Moses and the Israelites in verse 1, uh, sang this song to the Lord. And so we are going to unpack these 21 verses of this song. And I, there are many ways we can uh, uh, do this. Uh, we can look at this song and say that this song is a song of victory. It is a song of praise. It is a song of faith pertaining to the future. We also can look at these songs and say, well, as I study this song in 21 verses, you can look at what, who God is and what God has done. Easily packed into these two points. But this morning, I want to approach from another anchor and give you, gives you two points, 
And uh, I will spend a bit more time on the first point because there are a bit more, few more sub-points. So if I dwell a little bit longer on the first point, don't panic. Second point is quite straightforward. And I want to break up into two parts of it and say that this song is about, they were singing about the, the God of Exodus. And then they are also singing about the goal of Exodus, G-O-A-L, the God of Exodus and the goal of Exodus. Who is this God and what is, what is the whole purpose of this Exodus? What is God's purpose in delivering these people out of Egypt into the promised land? So the God and goal. But to start off, I just want to mention that this song, something is missing in this song, and that is me. Me, not in Glenn, but me as in you and, and everybody else. Uh, we are missing. I am missing. The song begins, I will sing, I will praise, I will exalt Him. In the verse, uh, second part of verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The, the horse and his rider He has hurled into the sea. And then talk about, I will praise Him, I will exalt Him. Uh, and then after that, it quickly forgets about self, and the whole song is focusing on God. I am not the center of the song. It is personal. The I am there is only meant to say your personal God, even though two million people are singing, but it is a personal God. It comes from my heart. But this is primarily a very God-centered worship song. Uh, if you were to look down into verse 21, verse 21 is a repeat of verse 1 with something missing there. Verse 1 simply says, I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. The horse and his rider He has hurled into the sea. But if you come down to verse 21, the reframe of it that Miriam saying, the I will disappeared. It is just an imperative to say, sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and his rider He has hurled into the sea. The I will disappear, and just an imperative to say, sing to the Lord. This song is characterized by an utter forgetfulness of self. Worship is not about us. Many times when we come to church, we come to worship, we think we, we, we are the center of it. We need to get something out of it and all that. It's true, but primarily worship is for God. Unless God gets something out of it, we won't. And in Psalms 115, verse 1, the psalmist said, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name. Be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and because of your faithfulness. Uh, D.A. Carson, who is supposed to come uh, uh, this year at the Belgrade Heights Convention speaker, um, but he didn't, uh, because of COVID, didn't, didn't come, but through, through Zoom and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he, in one of his books, D.A. Carson uh, um, said this, he said, the Christian's whole desire at its best and highest is that Jesus Christ be praised. It is always a wretched bastardization of our goals when we want to win glory for ourselves instead of for Him. It is always a wretched bastardization of our goals when we want to win glory for ourselves instead of for Him. So the, the, the initial introduction is to say that this song is not about us, uh, worship is about God, and this song focused on God initially. It's talked about I will, it's to emphasize that it is a personal God. And so let me move now very quickly, divide it very easily, verse 1 to 12. First point is singing about the God of the Exodus. This song is about a song about the God of the Exodus. And primarily, I want to focus on one attribute of God in this verses because it is, it, it is the focus of His attributes. There are many, many, uh, the whole scripture tells us about God, but this particular song, it focuses on one particular attribute that we often neglect on God. So let me just read to you 12 verses first. Follow me. Uh, 12 verses, uh, chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. He said, I will sing to the Lord. 
for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. And that tells me that it's Red Sea, not Red Sea. Uh, verse 6, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppose you. You unleash your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The next time you celebrate birthday, you try to blow your candles with your nostril. Don't try, okay? I mean, nobody will eat your cake. Huh? But the fact of the matter is to, to underscore the greatness and the power of God. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters concealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself to them, on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. Six, I will. I'll look at it. Verse 10, but you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. Singing about the God of the Exodus. There are many things as we read through this that we can tell, bring out about this God of the Exodus. But I think the main idea in this song focuses on one attribute of God, and that is in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. What an interesting image of who God is. The Lord, the God of the Exodus is a warrior God. He's a warrior God, which we often don't quite present God as a warrior God. But in this song, it focuses on Him being a warrior. And, and of course, when we say that He's a warrior God, it means different things to these two groups of people mentioned in this song, the Egyptians and the people of God, the Egyptians and the Israelites. It means different to the it means something different to the groups of people in the song. Uh, first of all, let's look at what does it mean when we say that God is a warrior God to the Israelites, to His own people. It simply means that when we say that God is a warrior God for the Israelites, it means salvation for them. So it means salvation for Israel. So, when we say that God is a warrior God, it means salvation for God's people. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The fact that the Lord is a warrior God, it means salvation for Israel because He has defeated Egypt, and, and Israel is now free. They have been delivered, and this is why they burst into song on the eastern shore of the sea. And the point is that the God of Exodus is a warrior who delivers His people. Who delivers His people. We don't often see God as a warrior God, do we? We like to talk about God as God of love, grace, merciful, compassionate, but a part of God as a strong warrior is increasingly uh, overlooked nowadays. But if you were to look at uh, chapter 14, go back to chapter 14, 
Uh, yes, God is a warrior. God, through His people, He delivered them. But how He delivers them is very important. And what the people's attitude in response in, in God's deliverance is very important. Look at verse 11 of chapter 14. Pastor Caroline has already preached that particular text to us, in, but I just want to read through so that you feel the force of this point that I'm making. Uh, when they were about to cross the Red Sea, uh, they were concerned. Oh, what am I going to do now? Now we're facing the sea, the, the Egyptians are coming behind us. And look at verse 11 where they even sarcastically questioned Moses. They say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? What's the purpose? Look at it. Didn't we say to you, in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptian you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And then the second part of verse 14, what you must do? You need only to be still. Or other verses say, you need only to be silent. Don't complain so much. Just keep quiet and be still and watch. Look at your eyes. Shut your mouth and use your eyes to see God is going to do a mighty work in front of you. And then God said to, to uh, Moses, why are you crying out to me? In this sense, why are you still praying? Move on. I'm going to show you now. Move on. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. In Isaiah chapter 64, uh, verse 4, in a similar kind of way, it says, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ears has perceived, no eyes has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for Him, those who are be still before Him, those who silent for Him. Or even Isaiah chapter 40, the amazing, uh, very famous verse in uh, chapter 40 uh, that we often uh, recite. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is an everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, or those who wait upon the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Be still. Be silent. Wait upon the Lord. Salvation is the work of God. And you and I have contributed absolutely nothing to it other than brought Jesus to the cross. That's our, contri that's our contribution. But in terms of saving side of it, we have contributed nothing. Salvation is a work of God for man rather than a work of man for God. We have contributed nothing. If you look at this cross, salvation is all of God's work. We're only receiving the gifts of it. It doesn't depend on you. And this is something it will take the whole lifetime for many Christians to learn of it. Because sometimes they commit a sin, they straight away think that they will lose their salvation. It will take your lifetime to accept the, even the daunting reality of the fact that you have contributed nothing to it at all. They say that the longest distance to travel is from your mind to your heart. Some truth that we know, but it takes a lifetime to truly emotionally experience it in your life. Even the simple thought that God is love, sometimes it takes your whole life to really allow that truth to sink it into your heart. It's the longest distance to travel. Many things we know about it, but we have not, and our knowledge is more intellectual knowledge, but it's not experiential knowledge. It is until it is experiential knowledge, then it becomes something that you will live out with conviction. And therefore, the first thing we need to note about God is a warrior God is that it means for God's people, it means salvation. Right? It's, it's, it's for salvation. And therefore, if God can save you, deliver you, 
is a warrior God, then you must trust Him. You must trust Him. Uh, whether in whatever situation that you, must, you are in, even now in this pandemic, you must trust Him. You must trust Him. In uh, uh, Psalm chapter 46, if you have time this afternoon, read through the famous psalm, God is our refuge and our strength and a very ever-present help in times of need. And then as you progress through the psalm, it begins to tell you the, the earth is quaking and all this earthquake and all this wind is surging, mountain is collapsing and all that. But towards the end of uh, chapter 46, verse 10, uh, the psalmist simply said, God said, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So in the song of, at the sea, we encounter the God of the Exodus as a warrior God who delivers His people. And because He's a warrior God that delivers His people, you and I, we must rest in Him. We must rest in Him. There's a story about uh, St. Felix of Nola during the 3rd century. As he was running away from his enemies, he took a refuge in a cave. And eventually, a spider began to weave a web across the small opening uh, of the cave, sealing it off and making it look like nobody had been inside for months. As a result, his pursuer passed by and didn't bother looking there simply because they saw the spider web and said, well, nobody will be in there. And later, stepping out into the sunshine, uh, Felix declared, he said, where God is, a spider webs is a wall. And when he isn't there, a wall is but a spider's web. Where God is, a spider web is a wall. And where he isn't, a wall is but a spider web. So the first point is that as we sing about God, singing the God of the Exodus, He's a warrior God. I want to emphasize. And because He's a warrior God, He means different things to these two groups of people. To his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, it means salvation, it means deliverance. But let me just move down to this, the sub-point B. Uh, what does it mean to the Egyptian? It means destruction for the Egyptian. It means salvation for the Israelites. It means destruction to, for Egyptians. It means their defeat and destruction that we have already read through the 12 verses. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. So as we encounter the God of the Exodus, we encounter the Lord as a warrior who destroys his enemies. This is a hard truth, and there is much to say about this. We don't seem to think that God is harsh. You know, harsh is a, is a, is a word that we, 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 we hate in our society. You know, everything is harsh. Uh, sometimes you, you just discipline someone, or it's harsh. Everything is harsh. And when we see God as a warrior God, and He punishes people, He, he, he destroys His enemy, we say, oh, wow, this, this can't be the God that I want to worship. God is a God of love and grace and compassion and merciful, and, and he, he just not into this kind of thing. But let me tell you, it is this kind of thing. God is into this. Uh, we're going to see this. Uh, bear in mind, many people, someone said that God created uh, man in, in His image. And we return Him the favor by creating Him in our image. So sometimes we project unto the God that we want this God to be rather than letting God be the God of the Bible and us submitting to the authority of God's Word and say, this is God. God is trying to reveal to us this is who He is. But let me just unpack it because there are, there are questions that we need to answer those issues that I just raised up. There are three things I want to say when I say that God is... Uh, it's a destruction uh, for Egyptian. I want to briefly give three observations about God's destruction of His enemies in the book 
of Exodus. Number one, God's judgment on the Egyptians is just. God's judgment on the Egyptians is just. It is no accident that the story that began with the Egyptian throwing Hebrew baby boys into the Nile ends with the Lord throwing the Egyptian officers into the sea. God's judgment on the Egyptian is just. It, in the same way, all people are under God's wrath and judgment, not because God is unreasonably grumpy, but because all people have rebelled against God and have committed grievous sin against both God and their neighbours. And so for God to refuse to punish such rebellion would be unjust. Just like we all know that we live in a society where, where we want justice. We want Australia to be a just country, that people who committed crime are justly is rightly punished in the sin. And therefore, we see often on the news, some people, didn't, certain criminals didn't get certain justice and there will be people who fight for it and say, there's no justice for this crime. So it's the same when God punishes and uh, destroys, He is a just God. He is a just, just God. So in this song, you see that God destroys His enemies. God triumphs, He throws down, He hurls, He covers with the deep, He shatters, He tears down, He consumes with fury, flares His nostrils, you know, immerse in the muddy water, swallow His enemy up in the other water. You see that language appearing in this song. But the question always in our mind is, isn't killing people mean? Doesn't God have to follow His own commandments? Thou shalt not kill, or is he above law? And the short answer is no, God doesn't have to follow his own commandments. Why? I'll tell you why. Laws are given to us is because we are imperfect beings. Because our scriptures say we are fallen beings, we are imperfect, and therefore we need laws to guide us. Even in the justice system, because of our fallen, I mean, I like to think that people know that we are sinful. Uh, uh, even, even in the law, laws in this country, because we know that we are fallen, therefore the law itself needs to be balanced, is to counter any abuses in the sense. Even criminal trial, you have juries in a sense. Why we have jury? Because it, it, it is to render an impartial verdict, just to make it just in a sense. Because we are unjust, we are, we are sinful, we are biased in a sense. And therefore, law is there to guide us. But God is a perfect being. Because He is a perfect being, he doesn't need laws to guide him in the sand. He's a perfect being. He, can, he will judge justly. He will judge justly because he's a perfect being. No, not out of malice or not out of resentment or not out of anger, revenge, that kind of way because he's a perfect being. Laws are for imperfect being. God is a just God. And as a just God, he will judge justly. And therefore, the scripture often said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, God said. Not us, we should not. Vengeance belongs to God. It is Him to give life and it is for Him to take away life. That is His right and not us. So God's judgment on the Egyptian is just. Remember, uh, these are the sworn enemies of God. They have seen God's mighty acts firsthand. They could have joined with the Israelites in the mixed multitude as they left Egypt, but they did not. Remember the plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart for five times. And the sixth time, God hardens his heart. And then on the seventh plague, Pharaoh again hardened his own heart. And then eight, nine, and tenth, God said, well, I've given you enough chances. Now, I will harden your hearts all the way so that my justice, my judgment can be manifested through you even though I very much want to manifest mercy through you, but now, because you have hardened your hearts and therefore you will become the vessel and the vehicle of me to project to the world of this just God. Look at verse 9. I just mentioned just now, 
How many times the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. Seven, seven, six times the enemy boasted and said, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is as they are pursuing God's people into the parted Red Sea. They have demonstrated that they are persistently evil and unrepentant. And God is not obligated to give them a second chance, or in this case, an eleventh chance. God, as Savior of His people, now crushes His enemies so they can no longer pursue them. And in a fallen world hostile to God's purposes, God must be a warrior. God's anger against evil and His destruction of those who oppose Him are inherent aspects of His majesty. God is just and will not tolerate evil, and especially people who oppose God consistently. God is abundantly patient, but evil will be totally eradicated. That is something we should celebrate. So God, so the first thing we can talk about, God's judgment on the uh, Egyptian is just. He's a just God. And I like to live in a society and, a, and believing in a God who is a God who acts out of justice. Secondly, uh, about the judgment on, on e Egyptians, not just only it is just, it is also necessary. God's judgment on the Egyptian is necessary. Why? Without destroying the Egyptian, the Hebrews remain slaves. Without judgment, there can be no salvation. This is all the more remarkable in light of what Jesus has done for us. If we project it back to the gospel, it is all the more remarkable in light of what Jesus has done for us. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God's judgment for our rebellions against God has been executed on Jesus at the cross. Because God has this dilemma. The dilemma is He loves us, but yet at the same time, His nature, He's a just God. Because He's a just God, He needs to punish sin. So how is He going to resolve this dilemma? He loves us, but His nature as a just God, He needs to punish sin. And that is when Jesus, the perfect being, died for us on the cross that satisfied this tension, this resolve, this tension of God as a loving God and a just God. He has to punish him and yet he loves us. And he finds a solution by sending Jesus to die for us on the cross and therefore he can forgive our sin because he loves us. This dilemma is solved at the cross. And so the Egyptian, the punishment and judgment on the Egyptian is necessary uh, because he of nature that he is a just God he cannot, us like us, a sinful person, just close our eyes and say, it's okay, I forgive you. Cannot. Sin needs to be punished. And as a result, in the gospel, it resolves on this beautiful thing about the cross of Jesus. What this means is that because of Christ's death, God can be the just judge of the universe and also able to forgive us and welcome us as his children. That is the beauty of the gospel. So many of us have kind of skewed this kind of point into unhealthy application. Timothy Keller, uh, he has this to say. He said, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you become more like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. You know, there's a great difference between better life circumstances and a better life. And because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, because of the gospel, because we're redeemed, we have a better life. Uh, not necessarily a better life circumstances. You can be in the worst life circumstances and yet you can have a better life because of Jesus. So, first thing, God's judgment on the Egyptian is just. Secondly, God's judgment on the Egyptian is necessary. And thirdly, God's judgment in, 
God's judgment in Exodus is impartial. It's impartial. Not just only it is just, not just only it is uh, necessary, but it's impartial. When we read this uh, song in the first 12 verses, we see that at this point, God's judgment has been directed at Egyptians. However, when Israel comes to Sinai, as we will approach that later on, and they mix idol to worship, several thousand Israelites are slain by the divine warrior. And this is certainly not the only time that God judges the Israelites en route to the promised land. So God's judgment in Exodus is impartial, not just only to the Egyptian. While it means salvation for the Jewish people, but He also judged them when they turn away. So God, the warrior, is not Israel's kind of pet lion whom they can send out against their enemies according to their pleasure. God's judgment is impartial. As we often say, the judgment begins with the house of God. And I think we live in a strange time now, in this modern 21st century. We live in a very strange time, indeed. Times when people wholeheartedly follow strange teachings and philosophies even within the church. Times of strong addiction to seducing spirits and times when leaders feed their flock with false doctrines. And as regards to the content and practice of the gospel, only those with discernment who understand the times and refuse to compromise their vision uh, know the difference between the true and the counterfeit gospel. These are times when sin is being redefined so that the things that used to sin are no longer considered sinful. These are days of confusion in which the doors of the church are wide open to worldly values and standards. Times when one can be born again and not be a new creature in Christ. Times when one can claim to be spiritual and yet show no evidence of this in one's character, conduct, value system, relationship or lifestyle. Strange times. These are days in which clear truth from Scripture are considered outdated. And new revelation and experiences are sought with all gullibility. These are days of lying wonders in which teachers who make miracles and end in themselves lead astray those who want a miracle at all costs. These are days when the gospel has come to view as a shortcut to the good things of life a good car or a bigger house. This strange gospel promises entertainment without commitment. And those who embrace it are content to accumulate titles at the expense of a good testimony. And for the love of celebration, we have shifted from the great commission to the great entertainment. The attraction of this mixture of worldly religion and the gospel is so strong that believers are being seduced by it. It is a time when church tends to listen much more to the world than to the Word. Too many people who claim to be Christians seem to agree when the world declares that sin is harmless and godliness is not only harmful but dangerous to good living. Current events and modern lifestyles are pressurizing the church into believing that God is either tired of running the world or into believing that God is that the world is no longer relevant. The world is no longer relevant. So human beings play God and in the process make a total mess of both themselves and the world. And those who want to keep peace both with the world and with God have ended up being seduced to embrace strong religious delusions. Tragedy. Strange time. Warren Wiseby, who passed away a number of years, wrote a whole commentary series on what they call B-series. Great commentator practical, sound Bible teacher. He wrote this in the 20th century. He said, for 19 centuries, the church has been telling the world to admit its sin, repent and believe the gospel. Today, in the light of the 20th century, the world is telling the church to face up to her sins, repent and start being the true church of the gospel. Even the world knows that all is not well in the church. And so, God's judgment is impartial. God also will judge the people of God. 
and you just need to read Ezekiel chapter 34. The whole account of God bringing the shepherd of Israel into account. Read it, 34. God bring judgment in the house. The shepherds. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourself. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And then go on and on and on, that God is bringing judgment. J.I. Packer uh, just died a couple of weeks ago. Sound, clear uh, theologian, make complex theological issue and express it in a very easy way to understand. He said, doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites, but it is only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. The, preacher, the preacher's job is to proclaim the faith, not to provide entertainment for unbelievers. In other words, to feed the sheep rather than amuse the goats. And so here you, here you go. The first point that I underscore is that God, singing the God of a warrior God, the God of this Exodus, they're singing this God, and this God of this Exodus in this particular song is that this God is a warrior God. And when we say that he's a warrior God, he means different things to the Egyptian and the Israel. To the Israel, he, he brings salvation. To the uh, Egyptian, it means destruction. And he, his destruction, his, his judgment is always just, is always necessary, and his judgment is definitely impartial because it will uh, include the people of God too. Second point, before I close, straightforward not just only singing about the God of the Exodus, the second point is singing about the goal of the Exodus. What is the purpose of this Exodus? Leading God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. What is the purpose? If you pay attention to the Sermon on the Ten Plagues, you read through that, it already says, so that they may be able to worship me. Uh, but I want you to move down to verse 13 now. Move to, verse 13 is the transition, it's a hinge. Because from now, it's talking about future, no more past. Chapter 15, verse 13 is the hinge. No more in Egypt, but now enter into the new promised land. It, verse 13 says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. So here it says that God is leading His people to where? To His holy dwelling, Right? So that is the purpose of the Exodus, leading them to His holy dwelling. And then in verse 14 to 16, it's basically just described God's leading Israel to the promised land past all these foreign nations, Edom, Moab, Philistia, and the Canaanites. Uh, just move past them. Uh, and then down to verse 17, which is, which is what I want to look at. 17 returns to what it means that God is leading His people to His holy dwelling in verse 13. Uh, verse, verse 13, God's purpose is to lead them to His holy dwelling. And then verse 17, expand on that. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountains of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. So Israel's destination here is described with three expressions. Yeah? The mountains of the Lord's inheritance, the place the Lord has made for His dwelling and the sanctuary the Lord has made with His own hands. So what we are expecting here is something that says that God is leading Israel to the promised land. But the song is not expressing promised land language in the sense that uh, it goes beyond the language of usually promised land uh, terminology is well known, you know, which is the land the Lord swore to give to Abraham and his descendant, a land flowing with milk and honey. So that is the, the language of the uh, promised land. But here, the song gives more intimate meaning to this promised land. The language here is more intimate. This is the language of the what? Of the temple, God's dwelling place. 
God is bringing His people to His temple. The Lord redeems His people so that He might dwell with them. And then verse 18 says, The Lord reigns forever and ever. So the, ex- the, the goal of the Exodus is that God wants to dwell with them. So what is the goal of the Exodus? The goal is God's people living in His presence and Him reigning forever as their King. Of course, of course, in this uh, immediate context is that Solomon will build a temple while he enter promised land sometime down the road. But if you read 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, uh, Solomon built a temple. He, he was really emphasizing himself that built the temple. But here in verse, uh, the language here is that the Lord will build the, the temple. The Lord, your hands established in verse 17. Is the Lord that builds the temple. So while we can apply immediately in terms of the temple that Solomon is going to build, that the people can go there and worship, this language also points to the future. Future of Jesus dying for us, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And 1 Corinthians 6 talks about we now is the temple. Our body is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us which is now. But let me just point you one more thing before I close. Not just only is talking about the immediate temple and fast forward to 2,000 years later about Christ coming, God with us, Emmanuel, dwelling among us, but it is also a language that points to the future when Christ returns. And that is in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 1 to 3 tell us that permanent dwelling in the future as well. Look at Revelation 21 verse 1. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. Now look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Permanent dwelling. So the song of the Exodus point not just to the immediate temple of God's dwelling with them, not just only to now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, God dwells with us, but into the future, in the future, when Christ returns. This is the story of the song, a beautiful song. Let me close with this. Many years ago, I went to, uh, uh, at that time, Word Bookshop was still, still there, uh, in my old church, we have a prayer meeting every Saturday at 7 o'clock. And uh, after prayer meeting, we usually go for breakfast. And then I might probably go to the bookshop, either Word Bookshop or Kurong, just hang there for a number of hours, just browsing through books and all that. And, uh, and, and on that particular Saturday, I bought some books. And at the end of my time in, in Word Bookshop, I was queuing up to, to pay my books. And right in front of me was a lady, an Asian lady, uh, elderly lady, bought quite a number of books. So I looked at the book that she bought. I noticed she bought a devotional book by uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, uh, called Morning and Evening. It's a devotional book by Charles Spurgeon. So I, I always like to uh, uh, strike out conversation with people. So I say, that's a, a good author. I say, Charles Spurgeon. And he's known as the Prince of Preacher. He said, oh, yeah, is that right? Uh, I, I, bought the, I want to buy this for my son. He's uh, in his 30s. He just got married. Uh, I'm concerned about his devotional life, and I want to buy uh, something that is solid for, for him. I read through this. It sounds good. I said, yeah, it's a very good devotional book. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is a very good author. And then he handed the book to me. He said, you hold on to it first, okay? And he said, he said look, after my, my, I'm in front of you, okay? I don't want to wait too long. And then he went across there and got another copy of Charles Spurgeon uh, Morning and Evening Devotional Book. And uh, when he came back, he said, he said, that book is for you. 
uh, as usual, you don't just excel. I said, no, no, no. I just uh, 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 mentioning about this book is a good book. That's why I don't mean to, for you to, 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 to give it to me. But she was very persistent. And then I will never forget what she said to me. She closed off by saying, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? I said, thank you. She said, that's right. And the question I posed to you this uh, morning as I close, uh, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? You say thanks. You sing and you worship. Praise God. And that is why in Hebrews chapter 13, isn't it? Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. Father, thank You for Your Word. Uh, what do we say when someone gives us a gift? What do we say when You gave us the greatest gift of Jesus Christ dying on the cross? What do we say? Lord, we say thank You. Because thanklessness always destroys the soul. But thankfulness always delivers the soul. May we praise you, may we worship you with songs and beautiful songs that Moses sung of deliverance for God's people. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Thank you that you are a warrior God, an attribute that sometimes we have forgotten. We have uh, hide it away. Uh, fear of this harsh society. We want to present God in a, in a good light. But, but God as a warrior is necessary because we want God to be a just God. We want to live in a society that is just, that this God that we worship is fair. He's, he knows He's a just, completely just God and He will execute justice justly. Justly. Because you're a perfect being. You don't need any law to guide you. You are the lawgiver. You are a perfect being and you will judge justly. And we want to worship such kind of God. We want to worship this kind of God. And this is the God that we worship. We want to sing. We want to say thank you for loving us and for, for, for the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross so that we can be saved. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Uh, may we sing praises and bow in awe of your greatness today. Amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen.